Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In her first novel, The Lovers and the Leavers, Abir Hawk undertakes a literary challenge that I suspect even the most seasoned writer would find daunting. How do you tell the stories of those people, old and young, cosmopolitan and rural, living throughout the world in the South Asian diaspora? She meets this challenge through a series of interconnected stories in which the links among characters emerge subtly but inextricably a web of family ties that reaches from Bangladesh and India around the globe. Moreover, she captures these stories not only in prose, but also in poetry and photography, making The Lovers and the Leavers a multimedia, multi-genre experience. It's an ambitious undertaking, spirited and subtle. Yet for all of Hawke's impressive artistry, she seeks very recognizable ends to give us a vivid sense of place as rich as the people who inhabit it, and to render the inner lives of those people, to let us feel their passions and their pains, those that mark them and make them sometimes beautiful, sometimes broken, but always compelling. Abir Hawk, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to have you here, and I can't wait to talk about your your interconnected uh, novel full of these wonderful stories. It's called The Lovers and the Leavers. But before we get to that, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background as an artist. You have this this nomadic sensibility that comes alive in the work. Um, I have my parents to thank for my nomadic uh, sensibility. <laughs> um, I was born in Nigeria. My parents moved there before I was born. And then we moved to the States when I was in high school. And uh, we um, used to visit Bangladesh a lot when I was a kid. And But I never lived there properly until I was an adult. And so when uh, I went back to Bangladesh to actually live there as an adult. It was the first time I was actually spending a lot of time in that space. And it was really, it was kind of like alien landing, but it was a really amazing experience as well. And this book of stories is where, um, is all set mostly in Bangladesh and India, where I spent about two years um, writing, taking the photographs um, and trying to put it all together. And we should let the readers know right out of the gate that, that this is indeed a, a book of short stories that link together, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about that. But it's also a book of poetry, and it's also a book of photographs. Yeah, um, I started off writing as a poet, and so that was my first love, basically. And so, um, and I started photography um, a lot later. So by the time I got around to writing this book, it was... Um, I had this sort of uh, idea to combine, to have a book that you could read in different ways. So you could see the photographs and uh, imagine the mood or the um, the characters in the story, or you could read the poems and get a different sense. Um, sometimes the poems are uh, written by a side character or another character who becomes a main character. 
for their inner dialogue. And so there would be multiple layers for the book, for reading the book. And um, my original idea was something kind of a little bit wilder, um, where I'd have different colored pages and you could read the red pages for one version of the story and blue pages for another version. But this one, um, it became a little bit more narrative, organized than that. But I'm still really happy that I was able to put those three things together prose, poetry, and photography, and find a publisher who is willing to publish it. It was kind of a difficult thing to try to find somebody in these states uh, who wanted to publish it, but uh, HarperCollins India, um, the editor there, loved the book and gave me all kinds of beautiful artistic license in the way it was laid out, and I think they did a really beautiful job. One of the, the wonderful experiences of the book is that you do have these moments where you hit say the photograph and the mood as, as an experience of the work, I don't even want to say reader because at that moment I just kind of gaze, the photographs are, are very meditative and evocative. And I was just curious as an artist, when you're putting together these different media, how do you think about the, the kind of collective experience that they amount to? You know, what is the artistic principle that guides you forward as you do that? Especially if you can't do color coded pages. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think um, it has so much potential. And I, I wanted to have different dimensions. I, one of the things that's great about photography is that you don't need words. Uh, you can, uh, it's like a translation of an experience in a way that doesn't require language, which I think is really important to me anyway, because there's so many things you can't say. And so that was uh, but, you know, there's lots of different ways to use all these different genres and uh, media. And the way I decided to do it in this way is um, it's just one of them, just one way to show our world, which can be read in all these different um, chaotic and multi-layered ways. And it's probably worth letting listeners know that you not only work, say, in three genres in one book, but that you are also a memoirist and a travel writer and an essayist who's working on a second novel and another collection of stories, which I think if I read right is a collection of erotica. And then there's also going to be a collection of ekphrastic poems. Yeah, yeah, I'm um yeah, I'm trying to do a lot of different things. Uh, part of it is I just want to learn how to do different things well. When I started this book, um it was about I think like 6 7 years into my writing um uh, my life as a writer, and I had never written fiction before. I had only been writing my memoir and poetry. So it was an experiment for me. And I, when I first started writing the stories, um, a lot of my friends, my lovely readers who had read my memoir stories uh, were a little bit, uh, maybe not sure of my direction because they had loved my um, stories from growing up in Nigeria. And my fiction was definitely not working as well when I first started, but I was kind of determined to get better at it. And so I just kept writing more stories and revising the ones that I had and getting lots of feedback and, um, yeah, just getting more of a feel for how to tell a story in a short story format. Um, that was sometimes loosely based on my own life or the lives of people around me. Um, but maybe just, yeah, something different different from what I had been doing before. Yeah, I think that 
you know, when you when you hear about writers that have this kind of range, the hope is that when you enter into one particular work, there'll be this this capaciousness, and, and I think this work has it. And one of the ways that it it registers that range that I think you bring as an artist is is through voice. So there are the voices that are in the poems, but the number of characters that interweave throughout this. Uh, could could you maybe introduce us to the world of the novel? That might be the best way to say it. Um, but the number of voices you hear and the range of characters and the range of ages and experiences and and places in the world, it's it's just impressive. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, one of my goals was to try to get as many different kinds of characters, voices in there as possible. So I wanted older and younger. I wanted different genders. Um, and uh, different classes as well. So one of the characters that comes up in a couple of the stories is this maid who grew up in uh, the village in Bangladesh and comes to the city to work. And uh, her love life is the subject of two different stories. And she appears as a side character in a couple of the other stories. And then her employers and her employer's kids also um, who are in a different class, of course, um, they end up also figuring in, in different stories. Um, the stories are all linked, so there's always some place um, where somebody is mentioned and they'll come back in another story. Um, so there's probably about, I think there's nine main characters in 12 stories, um, but a lot, of, yeah, a lot of repetitions throughout. There's... Um, most of the stories are set in South Asia because I wrote this book while I was on a Fulbright scholarship to India and Bangladesh. So I wanted the book to be centered there and also to have characters who, so even the characters who are in America and there's one story that's set in Spain um, are of South Asian descent. So they're Indian or Bangladeshi. Um, And so I have some, drawing from my own experience, there's a couple of stories that are set in America that, um, follow the Bangladeshi American immigrant experience, and there's one story in Spain because I used to live there for a few um, for half a year, and I lo- I fell in love with uh, Barcelona, and I wanted to have a story set there. So, um, so that's yeah, that, those are kinds of the ranges. I wanted teenage characters, <clears throat> I wanted uh, you know middle aged characters, and. Older, I think it's probably skewed towards more younger characters because that's um, more of what I know how to write about. But um, I definitely want to branch out, especially in the book that I'm writing now. I'm trying to write from an older man's perspective, and that's been a, a big challenge for me. Well, there there are definitely a lot of young and hip characters in it. Uh, the The chapter in Barcelona is quite amazing because. You're you're in this world of Bangladesh, and it's it's so alive. And then here we are in the states, which is something you know a reader in America is going to know a little bit better, perhaps. Um, but then here we are in Barcelona, seeing the city through the eyes of this young teenage boy who's going through kind of adolescence and older brother worship and soccer. Um, and so the the range of empathy is is. Varied and um, and I think what you end up getting is a kind of entire population scattered throughout several continents. Yeah, that was um, the South Asian diaspora is, is is it's everywhere. So it's it's kind of fun to write about. Um, 
And I've seen it growing up in Nigeria. There was a, a big community of South Asians there. And of course, in the States. And when I was in Barcelona, that was there too. Um, I I met people who had grown up there, people who had uh, immigrated there later on. And yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic to me because I'm part of that diaspora. And it's it's an interesting story. Everybody has a different story. So the, the form, Depending on where the, yeah, so how do you tell that story, right? Because you don't have the kind of traditional Aristotelian unities of place, time, character. You're, you're going all over. And it seemed to me that the, the way that you interlink the stories so that everyone is both a primary and a kind of secondary character in other people's lives becomes a very nice way to capture um, that global phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's nice. Uh, the things that I had challenges with, sometimes I had really clear ideas about the characters I was writing about, but it was often sometimes the place that would give me, that I would um, I would write about. Like when I was writing about that, the story about the the teenage boy in Barcelona, and he's uh, also one of his passions is windsurfing. And I had a friend who was a windsurfer who read the story and she said, um, you don't have enough wind in your story. <laughs> Um, and this is something I was totally just, you know, making up because I've never actually windsurfed. Um, and she's like, you have to have a real sense of the air when you're there. And so that was something I had to go back and, and look at the story and see if I could rewrite it so that it, it would be clear that this boy was really in his element and paying attention to it. Or there's another story that's set in the village, um, which I've spent a lot of time in my father's village in Bangladesh. And um, I'm following the this little boy who is uh, growing up in the village and he's got sort of um, a little bit of a special power. Um, and he lives with his family, his mother and his father and his, and his brother. And someone, a friend who read the story said, it's too quiet. You know, the village is not quiet. Everyone's all up in your business. And so I also, that was another thing that I went back and I, um, yeah, I had to go think about how, what it would sound like in the village, what, what people would be around. Um, and he's right. It is always true. When I was in the village, I always, there's always like a child looking in through the window or someone coming in through the door or something happening outside. So it's, I mean, I think it's, for me, one of my greatest joys is writing about place. And I would like to write it in, about it in a way that has integrity or feels right to people who have been there. And, and we should probably let listeners know that when you say you wrote from the perspective of a young boy, this boy is six. Yeah. How how do you enter into the the mind of a six year old boy who's very worried about a goat? Yeah, yeah, this boy and a goat. And I, maybe I'll read a little section from uh, from this story. But it's funny when my editor first read that story, he thought that perhaps the um, the language was too elevated for a six-year-old, and I went through it again, and and I don't, you know, I, I, I think he agreed with me after I talked through it with him, but none of the thoughts in there were thoughts that were too complicated for a six-year-old. Uh, they were maybe worded in a way that were, he wouldn't say, of course. Then again, maybe nobody would talk the way that I would uh, make them talk in the story, but I think it was right to his feelings and to his uh, sensibility, the way that I had written the story. At least that's the way I, I felt. And I had a couple of other readers uh, read it just to give me their feedback. 
But I think it, it's just one of my favorite stories because it's a little bit different from some of the other stories. It's not uh, so much of a love story as it is. Well, it is with between him and his, his pet goat, <laughs> a different kind of love story. Um, and it was also an ode to my father's village because it's, uh, that's what I was thinking of when I was writing the story is this beautiful um, rural pastoral landscape. Well, I think it would be great to hear a little bit of the novel. Thank you. Okay, so this story is called Alo, which is the name of the little boy. It means light. And it starts off, each of the stories starts off with a poem. So I'll just read the first, uh, the poem in a few pages. She sits on the bed as the rain counts out the minutes of her life on the tin roof. She ignores the call, her husband in hunger, her sons in thirst. She in thrall to what's coming. A teasing wind steps through the grilled window, furls the pages of the calendars on the wall. Obsolete all. 2005 falls back with a slap. 1998 caresses 99. Dhip, She undoes the kopa at the back of her head in a lightning crackle. Crow black hair loose to the air. And now the real rains begin. Dhip, My name is Alo. I am six, and it is the rainy season. Nobody knows, but I can guess what people are going to say, so I don't have to listen most of the time. Sometimes, when I have something else I want to do, I will jump into the future and answer from there. That way, I can finish talking sooner and go play in the rice paddy field with my goat, Kishmish. There's lots of water in the fields, and the stalks are sharp and green. I like the sound it makes when I walk in it, the swirl of the water around my ankles, the mud sticking, sucking between my toes. Abba is telling me about Kurbani Eid, about and how he's going to sacrifice his son for God. But God stops him before he does it. He puts a ram under Ibrahim's falling knife instead. That's why we celebrate Kurbani Eid by sacrificing an animal, Abba says, because of Ibrahim's faith. I hate it. I hate it because Abba is going to slaughter my goat, even though he knows I'm afraid of blood. He says I shouldn't be, that it will be an honor for Kishmish, but I don't want him to die. I want to stop thinking about blood, so I look ahead to see what Abba is going to say. He's going to talk about how blood makes all the same. A picture of Abba's body merging into mine comes into my mind. It's not scary, but I don't understand it. We're not the same. I shout as I run out of the house. I don't wait to hear what Abba says. I never wait. It's Abba who told me that looking backwards is only for old people. Sometimes when I jump into the future, I see the wrong answer. But that doesn't happen very often, and no one seems to notice anyway. Amma knows when I'm doing it. When I look ahead with her, she always stops what she's doing and watches me. When I get it right, she claps her hands and laughs her thin bangles clinking. She leans down and kisses me on the forehead and whispers, Now run out and play, my little prophet. Joy is my older brother. He is seven and just started class one. Ammu sued his uniform at night after dinner. Abba could have done it because he's a weaver, but he won't because that's Ammu's work. It took her a month because she's not very good at sewing. Abba says she's not very good at many things, only at talking and wasting time. 
She only laughs when he says this. Her hair is coiled into a shiny kopa at the back of her head. She likes to shake the bun loose and retie it. Abba always falls silent when she does this. I wonder if he can hear the same thing, the spark and hiss of the strands swishing against each other. Amu says she'll make my uniform too to be good, or else I won't get to go to a good school like Joy. I don't want to go to school. Not if Joy will be there. He always has reasons to beat me. When he hits me on my head, it hurts so much I can't even cry. I just sit on the cool dirt of the compound and try to push the buzzing out of my body in short bursts. Push, I think. Go. I don't think I'm making any sound, but Ammu runs in and asks me what's wrong. I can't push and talk, so I don't say anything. Just let Alo be, Abba says from the doorway, retying his blue check lungi around his waist. You make him weak with all your fussing. He turns away and bumps into Joy. What are you doing here, he asks. Kisuna, Joy says. Nothing. Then go to bed. But I have homework, Joy says. He loves saying he has homework. Abba always leaves him alone then. Ammu can't read, but still she sits with Joy every night, looking over his shoulder by the hurricane lamplight. She says if he studies hard, he can become like her her great-grandfather, who used to be the school headmaster. Joy doesn't want to be headmaster. He wants to be a police inspector. Then he can beat up anybody, even in front of Abba and Ammu. I think that's a great place. I think in this passage, one of the things you see that, that runs throughout the novel is this sense of lyric beauty that'll crop up, like the moment where the braid or the bun becomes undone and there's the spark as the strands of hair swish against one another. Um, and there's a kind of lyric intensity that, that plays against plot and uh, character for a beautiful harmony. Um, yeah, I think in this story specifically because he's little, um, I wanted, I figured that he would be more like the things he would talk about or think about would be very sensory. And so I really tried to focus on all the senses that surround him. And also because he has a, he has a little bit of a way of looking forward into the future or with people, he's got a bit of an ESP going on. And so I wanted him to have kind of a keen sense of place. So when you build a world from from Alu's perspective, that's very different from, say, Kumala's perspective. Could you tell her a little bit about? Could you tell us a little bit about her so we get a sense of the the range of people populating the book? I know you mentioned her in passing earlier, but she's a fascinating character. Yeah, she's she's um and she's based on somebody I actually knew um, uh, who was a maid in my aunt's house where I was living when I was there, and. Um, and so uh, my, these two stories, she unfortunately, tragically died uh, a couple of years ago, unexpectedly from an illness. Um, but her stories are the ones that inspired the stories in the book. Uh, she is, Kamala is, uh, is a maid and she's never been to school. She's worked as a maid her whole entire life. And she's um, found love late in life. She's in her 50s and she's uh, met this man and um, she is in love with him. And he's, you know, their relationship is a little troubled and that's the subject of, of the stories. Um, she was 
was actually initially when she was in the village, she did get married, but her baby died. And so she ran away, basically, from the village, from her uh, relationship and from the death of her child and ended up in the city. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the world she lives in now. And so she she also has a love story, and, and I think you know the title is the lovers and the leavers, and that's one way to get a, a range on kind of what occurs. But it seems to me that that if I were going to describe the book to someone and I wanted to encourage them to read it, I would say it's it's a, in a large sense a book of love stories, and some of them are are charged with desire, and other ones are kind of infused with tenderness, and some of them are about longings and then some are just about loss. Um, but I was wondering yeah. if, if you saw that thematic driving it forward or, you know, you had mentioned a lot about place. Yeah. I, you know, when I first started writing the stories, I didn't have a sense of a theme. I thought I was going to go to Bangladesh and I was going to write all, all these exotic stories <laughs> because I had, um, because they would be, in a different place, of different people. And while it's true that the stories are have a setting that's very different from, uh, say, stories set in America, I soon found that people the world over think about similar things. They are thinking about love and loss and their families and money and ambition and um, all the same things that people... And actually, a conversation that I had with... Uh, with the maid, um, the actual maid in real life, is a sort of exemplary of, of my experience of writing these stories. She had, um, she was, you know, in love with this man who was in another city, and she came to my room one day very upset, and she asked a question that I've asked myself, and many people have asked themselves, um, which is, why doesn't he call? <laughs> and I remember thinking, this woman who was so different from me, who grew up, in the village, who's older, who never been to school, is, uh, is is also thinking about love in the same ways that I have often thought about love. And so it was kind of a, a revelation in a way uh, to me, which you know, maybe it's also obvious, but it's, it's nice to experience it for yourself to see how people are the same wherever they are in the world. Yeah, I think you you, rec- you can recognize the universal, but the the artist needs to capture it in the particular, and that's where you really right. see it, as opposed to, to bracing cliches. Well, I I want to make sure because I want readers to have a sense of of the kind of range. Um, tell us about a, a character like Rox, or maybe you know a story like the Alphabet Game, because that's that's a different note that the book hits that uh, I'm sure will. Right. <laughs> draw a few readers yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah one of the main characters in the book is this uh, Bangladeshi American immigrant uh, called Rox, Roxanne and she is um, the subject of a couple of different stories and she is um, yeah there's the, the story The Straight Path is about her um, kind of crush on this uh, teenage boy in their Bangladeshi community and about her friendship with uh, with her best friend um, and also another um, friend in the community, another boy, Raza, who's, um, he's a side, sort of a side character in Straight Path, but then his teenage years or adolescent years uh, become the focus of a, another story called The Alphabet Game. Um, 
where he's uh, growing up in this in this house with his uh, sister who, who is kind of a bit of a bad girl. And um, he has run-ins with her friends who are also kind of a little bit, a little bit bullies and, um, but he ends up having a little thing with one of them, but it's, yeah, it's, um, I wanted to show a couple of different stories or voices from the Bangladeshi uh, immigrant experience. Raza also is half Bangladeshi, half American. So that also contributes to his differentness, um, and uh, immigrants in general, right, they end up having uh, sometimes a really a bit of a bubble experience where they just stay within their communities in the country that they're living in. Um, but Raza is kind of forced out of that because his parents are divorced and his parents are of different uh, nationalities and ethnicities. Well, what I've been wanting uh, to share is sort of the with, with listeners is the range of the book and kind of the interesting aesthetic choices that you've made that have resulted in this, this beautiful interweaving of, of forms and characters in place. Um, would you be able to read us a little bit more of it so that they can have a direct experience? Uh, sure. I could read, um, maybe I'll read a little section from the straight path, which is set in America and has rocks as uh, the, protagonist. So this story is called The Straight Path, and it starts off with a poem. Oh, my soft skin, sharp tongue girl, how does your garden grow? With violet diversions and careless replies, and clairvoyance planted so. Oh, you're crooked in straight disguise, what would I do for a kiss? Reckless, racing, I make my escape, your flowers spilling from my lips. 8% says her voice hoarse, scornful, confident. She laughs and crosses her legs. Her buxom body curves like a wink. They're joking, right? Well, says Rox, it says in the article that women tend to understate their sexual exploits and men overstate. She looks up from the Baltimore Gazette at her old friend. She finds it hard to look away sometimes. Ela has always been striking. When she was younger... The punk haircuts and goth makeup only highlighted her large eyes. Now, she's returned from Bangladesh, all grown up and more beautiful than ever. She's also walking the straight path after years of stylish hedonism. This includes a Bangladeshi husband with exceptional educational and social pedigree. And although she's currently wearing Western dress, Ila has a closet full of t- saris she can tie with as much grace as the next auntie. Yeah, that makes sense. But what's the percentage for married women cheating now? Ela is clearly engaged. Rox is amused, wondering if Ela's enthusiasm speaks of something real. She continues reading. 13% of married women in America cheat on their spouse, up from 8% a decade ago. But the men's percentage hasn't changed in years. It's 22%. That's a big fat lie too, Ela says. Guys must be well over 50 Ela pulls back her henna-streaked hair from her face and lets it go. Here, let me read the article. When they were seniors in high school, just before Ela left for Bangladesh, she came on to rocks. They were drunk and had just stumbled at a bar in the inner harbor south of downtown, where a man, believably named Bam, had bought them drinks all night in return for half-smiles and mumbled thanks. Rox stood by Ela's mother's Mercedes, 
parked thoughtlessly in the shadow of the grimly peeling wharves, while Ela fumbled for her keys. Let me drive, Roxad said. She was perhaps half a rum and coke less drunk than Ela was. Are you kidding? This is my mom's fancy car. I have to take the blame if something happens. She usually never lets me drive it. It's just that the station wagon is for the mechanics, and also, she's away. Ela was wearing a tiny leather skirt and a gauzy top, her bare legs golden in the light of the lone street lamp. Rox had on an equally ambitious skirt in green cotton. They drove off at ten miles an hour into the suburbs, smoke from Ela's cigarette trailing behind them, Chardet mourning from the speakers. The moon was so bright that their headlights seemed unnecessary, and after their tenth laughing fit, Ela stopped the car by some gnarled pine trees and leaned across the butter-colored seats towards rocks. Rox flops across her narrow twin bed and looks around. Her old lamp-lit bedroom is at once familiar and strange, as if all that's left of the person who lived here is her aura, outlined by the books heaped everywhere, from the velveteen rabbit inscribed with her mother's slanted script on her fifth birthday, to the Delta of Venus, her college boyfriend, a parting gift, and everything in between. Feroz bursts into the room, and she jumps up in equal glee. He's her favorite of all the kids in her parents' circle of friends. Last time they met, almost a year ago, he was jubilant at having finally grown taller than her, and insisted on a photograph for evidence. Now he's 17 and unmistakably taller, though his narrow frame has yet to fill in. He has been stronger for years, though, as she found out during an arm wrestling match a couple of years ago. Feroz is athletic and reckless, so he's hardly ever without an injury or two. Their first bonding moment was when he was nine and had an especially bad scrape on his knee. Rox, home on fall break, was the only one to a viewing and then offered to throw ball with him. She wonders what Feroz will be like. Silly and subversive and sharp. Perfect first love material. I'll stop there. Great. Well, I think what you also get in that passage that, that runs throughout the book is the sense of the passage of time, the kind of layering and history that these characters share with one another. Um, and that happens between stories as well as within the stories themselves. Um, and it gives you a sense of richness and depth to the world that you're bringing to them. Yeah, I'm glad that comes off. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you, you've created this portrait of sort of the South Asian global diaspora, and now that the book's out, uh, how, how have readers found it? Have you had any responses that you found particularly rewarding or surprising? Um, I have had full responses uh, from readers, which has been really, really, uh, yeah, very rewarding. Um, and I... Also, I really like loved the response to the fact that the book has photographs and poems in it, and people appreciate that because you don't see so much of that in in books. I mean, it's expensive to print photographs. Uh, it's annoying to lay out poems inside of prose, and so um, it's it's a challenge for publishers. Um, and again, I'm really glad that HarperCollins India was uh, happy to do all that for me. Um, but yeah, it's been really great uh, listening to people respond to the stories and different people. Like there's a, a reviewer in India who just uh, responded to um, to the book, and and it was 
it was lovely to hear what uh, what resonated with her. She actually enjoyed. She thought the 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 voice was strongest when it was the story set in the, the states, um, which is you know which is great. And then I think the people who uh, are in the states have really liked some of the stories that are set in the village in Bangladesh, for for instance. So I think it's a little bit of. Um, you know, where seeing seeing stories from other places, I think that gets to people. I, I think for me, as a, a reader squarely in Midwestern America, it felt like travel. I I was swept up in the travel writing that had also the benefit of story and character, um, and it made for That's a very rich experience. Yeah, travel writing is one of my favorite kinds of things to do. So it's it's I, I think it's probably going to be a factor in every in an aspect of every kind of writing I ever do. Well, so where are you going next? The, uh, this novel is out, and I, I very much hope we will continue to re- receive attention. Um, but what artistic projects are in your near future? Um, so yeah, I've, I've been working on well, my <clears throat> I'm going to have my memoir, which is a book about growing up in Nigeria, the States, and Bangladesh. That's going to be published next year. Um, so I'm excited about that. That's actually the first book I wrote um, as part of my thesis at my uh, MFA program at University of San Francisco. And um, it's been rewritten many times since the, you know, the 10 years since that I've written, I finished the first draft. Um but in its final incarnation, it's going to be finally put into a published form, which I'm super excited about. Um, but these, uh, both this book, The Lovers and the Leavers, and All of Which, which is my memoir that's coming out next year, are books that I um, started and finished drafts of several years ago. So I've actually been working on a f- number of different things since then. I've been working on a novel for about four or five years, which is uh, about memory loss and about how a man who loses his memory at two very different times of his life, first as a young person um, who's a drug addict, and then later on in the book, he's an older man with dementia. So I wanted to see how these two very different uh, places in his life would affect it. And I started, it's set mostly in the Bay Area, and it's got a big chunk that's set in New York, Um and I started writing it when I was in Bangladesh, uh, which is, you know, it was kind of funny that I started this book that's very, very strongly set in the Bay Area, um, because the Bay Area figures so largely in my in my heart. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, so the book is also a bit of an ode to the Bay Area, and also just an ode to memory and what it means in our in our lives and our personalities. So that's been a, a project that's been ongoing. I still haven't done a final draft to my satisfaction or to anyone else's anyway. Um, and I've also been working on a, a collection of short stories that are erotic uh, travel-themed short stories. I'm only about halfway through those. And those, again, are also about place. Um, so places as much of the character as the love stories that are in them. And uh, picking weird and cool places. Um, I've written one set in Bolivia, one set in Beirut, there's one set in Bangladesh and one in Galway, Ireland. And I've also been working on a series of poems because I wanted to get back to writing poetry more. I'd sort of spent maybe 10 years writing prose and stopped writing poetry and it was a big gap in my life. And so I thought maybe I would use photographs from my collection and take a different photograph each time and write a poem that would be a 
sort of an in, inspired by the photograph, maybe a story about it or um, the mood of it. So it's a series of these poems. I call them photo poems, but acrostic poems, I guess, is the technical term for it, which still to me sounds like a fake word, but <laughs> I know it's a real one. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, those are those are the two new or three new projects that I've been working on the last couple of years. That sounds like a full plate. Well, I hope that you'll come back and talk to us about the memoir when it comes out. Yeah, I would love that. Well, before we let you go, could you tell us a little bit about The Olive Witch? That's the name under which people can find you online and on your website. They can see some of your beautiful photographs. Uh, but we, we, we only have the title, and I'm curious about what's behind it and what it means. Yeah, it's, it's actually um, a bit of an odd thing. It's just uh, Olive Witch is um, the name of my memoir, and it's also the name of my website, uh, olivewitch.com. But it came about completely as just a play on words. It's actually uh, it's a nickname I had in, in college with my, my college boyfriend. Um, used to be in love with Rage Against the Machine, this uh, band. And they had a song which... It said, uh, one of the lines in the song was, all of which are American dreams, all of which are American dreams. And he twisted the words and he, he would call me all of which and say he was my American dream. And so it just became, it just kind of stuck and he would just call me all of which and other people did also every now and then. And, and I thought it was a funny and, uh, a completely random <laughs> name, but it's sort of become part of how I think about the book now, just because uh, my memoir anyway, and my website, it's become a moniker of sorts, even though it stems from something that's just basically a nonsense uh, uh, punning of, of the words. What would life be if we couldn't embrace nonsense? <laughs> right. Exactly. Abir, Abir, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It was really lovely to talk to you. <laughs> This is Eric LeMay for the New Books Network, and you've been listening to an interview with Abir Hawk, author of The Lovers and the Leavers.